Fox working good. <laughs> Need to shine a spotlight on it so I can see it. Well, good morning. We, uh, we now uh, pick up in the first epistle of uh, Peter. Uh, and I'll read uh, our text uh, for this morning and then pray and then we'll uh, jump right in. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this, your word. And pray, O oh Father God, that as we look into it this morning, that I would handle it aright. Lord, that those words which are spoken, Lord, would be your words. Lord, that your name would be magnified and your church edified and strengthened. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin today with Peter's greeting uh, to the recipients of this letter. The, uh, the recipients of the letter are elect exiles in the dispersion. We'll talk a little bit more about that later, but just so you have a geographic idea of where he's writing to, it's in Asia Minor. Paul and, and others had, had done missionary trips in the lower part of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. And, uh, and then kind of on the, the western edges. Uh, but when they wanted to go into further into North and East Asia, the Holy Spirit forbade them, and uh, they ended up going elsewhere. But uh, these, the, this name Pontus and Cappadocia, that might sound familiar to you because in the book of Acts it says that there were Jews and Jewish proselytes, Gentile converts, who were there, in the book of Acts, uh, as recorded in the book of Acts, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and preached after they had all been baptized in the Holy Spirit. So no doubt what happened is that those who were there, who heard the gospel and believed, uh, went back uh, to their home place. And so this, this letter is being written some 30 years after that has happened. So... Today, we rarely use formal greetings to begin, you know, a text or an email or other digital or written communications. It's usually not much more than a hey or hello, good morning, or, you know, what's up and things like that. But the greetings of the epistles that we see in the New Testament are written by the apostles like Peter and Paul and John took a commonly used Christian greeting of the day as like, uh, I wish you joy, or may you have joy, and, and made them into apostolic pronouncements, benedictions of, of grace and peace. And we see an example of a, a benediction or a blessing of grace in Second Samuel fifteen twenty, where David says to those listening to him, and may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. So Peter proclaims grace to the believers in Upper Asia Minor, which signifies that grace, which signifies God's love and action 
in Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. That's a quotation from Dr. Ed Clowney, who was a professor at Westminster Seminary uh, and was actually a mentor to Dr. Tim Keller at some point. But um, he has a very good commentary on uh, the book of 1 Peter. So Peter proclaims this grace to them. And that grace, again, it signifies God's love in action in Jesus Christ on behalf of us sinners. Peter also pronounces peace. For Peter knew the Prince of Peace. He had been with him face to face. He had heard the pronouncements of peace from the lips of Jesus in the upper room at the Last Supper, where Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. And in John 14, that's in John 14, 27, and after his resurrection when he appeared to them and pronounced peace unto them. The Messiah's peace was given in the shadow of the cross. Jesus gave us his peace, not only in spite of the cross, but because of the cross. By his death, by his death, Jesus bore the judgment of God's just wrath and made peace, not only between Jew and Gentile, but between God and man. He is writing to those who are feeling the scorn, the ridicule, and maybe even being canceled, if you will, from both the Judaizers of that area and the pagans. They are suffering for the sake of Christ and need encouragement. Peter once fought for Jesus, if you remember, taking out a sword and cutting off the ear of the high priest's servant. But now Peter, the apostle by grace, of the risen Lord pronounces peace that comes by the cross of Jesus. His letter gives details of all the blessings that he begins with in this greeting. Now most of the New Testament epistles follow a commonly used greeting form of that day as follows, an identification of who is writing or sending the letter, a simple statement of fact or with additional statements of purpose as Paul does in his Uh, lengthy introduction to uh, his letter to Titus. It uh, names to whom the letter is written. Sometimes it's simply stated, as Colossians 1, 2 says, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossus, or a more elaborately detailed description of the blessings that the recipients experience, experience, such as we have here in 1 Peter. And a blessing most often a pronouncement or a benediction of grace and peace or grace and mercy and peace as we have in Paul's greeting in 2 Timothy. So having reviewed the life of Peter as described in the four gospels in the book of Acts, we now turn our attention to this epistle, which was written in the mid-60s A.D. The authorship, there is much information available to support the conclusion from centuries ago that The Apostle Peter is the author. If that's your interest into digging into things like that, I can point you to some references uh, later on. But uh, one thing about reading 1 Peter is I began to think about it. We may wonder how it is. uh, How many of you know any commercial fishermen? You know, I think most of us, the commercial fishermen we know are not people who would write a letter like this, who, you know, would have that sort of language skill. And as I began reading First Peter, it was going like, you know, 
these guys were commercial fishermen. You know, they lived a, a rough outdoor life and stuff and, and uh, looked into it. But um, he communicated, uh, and uh, this letter is written in Greek. He did, he did dictate the letter as Sylvanus, who is also known as Silas, uh, evidently wrote it down for him. But, you know, that the disciples, that the apostles had no formal education was pointed out by the religious rulers of the day. Acts 4, 13 uh, reads like this. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished, you know, at the way that they were preaching. Their accents were evidently different from the educated class as related in the accounts of the Passion of Christ. People in Jerusalem could figure out a person's home area by their accent. You are a Galilean, Matthew twenty six seventy three. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. It's uh, kind of interesting because uh, someone that I know who is a, a counselor here in town and, and is from Texas uh, relates that, uh, you know, people will say to him at times as he's talking, they say, you're not from here, are you? <laughs> you know, with that accent. So it was, uh, it was something that, uh, that gave them away. But commentators remind us that Peter and Andrew were born in Bethsaida, you know, which had influence from the Greek conquest. They conducted their, uh, their seafood business, if we want to call it that, along with James and John, their partners in the commercially thriving city of Capernaum, which was a thoroughly Hellenized city. It was conquered by the Greeks in 329 B.C., then the Romans came in 63 B.C. So here we are 100 years after the Roman conquest uh, at the approximate date that this letter was written. Uh, the city was multilingual, you know, due to the Hellenizing and the Roman influence. Uh, it's no doubt that uh, Peter and his partners had learned the language uh, sufficiently to be able to communicate and conduct business, even though their Greek is common in style and not a high formal Greek. So, anyway, Dr. Clowney describes the epistle with these words. The first epistle of St. Peter is the most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it expires, it inspires. The most condensed New Testament resume of the Christian faith and of the conduct that it inspires and is a model of a pastoral letter. So Peter is writing, again, to encourage the churches in the Central and Upper Asia Minor, as we talked about uh, earlier. Uh, again, Paul and Silas, I mean, Paul and Timothy, uh, you know, had wanted to push into that area but were forbidden and were sent instead to Troas and they sailed across to Macedonia after having had the dream of someone asking them to go and preach the gospel there. And uh, so we didn't, they didn't go there. Whether Peter went there is not really known. But Peter uh, had some contacts. He knew people. He knew of the church. He was familiar with the church. And Peter, the very Jewish fisherman whose primary calling was to preach to the Jews, is writing to largely now Gentile believers. And they are the new diaspora, you know, that, that word to describe the scattering of the Jews, you know, throughout so many nations, uh, especially around the Mediterranean realm. Uh, but Peter says they are the new diaspora. They are scattered in the world, but they are chosen by the Father 
They're sanctified by the Spirit, and they are cleansed by the sprinkling of Christ's blood. So the encouragement here, as is true with all Scripture, is timeless. For in every age, in every place, Christians who truly believe and practice the word and walk in the truth of the gospel experience a measure of separation, alienation, suffering, ridicule for the sake of Christ in the days of our sojourn. We are wayfaring strangers. We can see it each day as our current Western culture is devolving in many ways, abandoning abandoning its Christian influence and the word of God. So Peter's encouragement here is very applicable in our day. It comes in the form of instruction in the word of God. It comes in the form of instruction in the word of God. We see him here 30-something years later after Jesus, faithfully fulfilling the calling as an elder and an apostle that was noted in the book of Acts as he continues to labor in prayer and in the word of God. As we go through this life, as we sojourn here, I have a quote from C.S. Lewis from his book, The Problem of Pain. The settled happiness and security that we all desire, God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. You know, that ultimate happiness. Everybody's looking for ultimate happiness, ultimate peace and security. We all desire that. There's something in us that wants that. But God withholds from us by the very nature of the world. But joy, pleasure, and merriment, he has scattered broadcast. Our Father refreshes us on the journey, C.S. Lewis says, with some pleasant ends, I-N-N-S, pleasant ends, but he will not encourage us to mistake them for home. Another quote from Lewis, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we are made for another world. And so the believers in the diaspora in northern Asia Minor. We look to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 13 to 16, speaking about all those who went before us in faith, trusting in the word of the Lord. These all died in faith, not having received the things that were promised, but they saw them and they greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland, If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, as it is, brothers and sisters, so it should be with us, we desire a better country, and that is a heavenly one. So we are joined together with the recipient of Peter's letter back in the first century. And because of that, the word says, Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. He has prepared for us an inheritance. Let that sink in. God is not ashamed to be called the God of those who trust in him, for he has prepared for us a city, an inheritance. 
So as believers, we are called by God to train our minds and our hearts to firmly latch onto the biblical teaching as we are passing through this world as pilgrims and strangers. We can never allow ourselves to be comfortable with what this world has to offer. We are merely sojourners, travelers, passing through this world on our way to glory. From the first promise of redemption in the garden, Genesis 3.15, to that glorious heavenly vision of the city of God that you read about in Revelation 22. All of the Bible focuses on our pilgrimage for which God has prepared his people. And some of those words came from Pastor Nick Batzig, as he wrote in uh, Table Talk magazine uh, last month, September. As sojourners in this life, we are called to be people of the word of God. I quote Dr. Clowney again, our deepest needs drive us to our deepest belief. Think about that for a moment. What is your deepest belief? He says our deepest needs drive us to our deepest belief. Our deepest needs drive us to our deepest belief. When we encounter the trials and the storms and the temptations of this life, how deep is your belief? How deep is my belief? Are we building on steadfast rock, deep steadfast rock, or shifting sand? Jesus said if we stand upon the rock of his word and seek to do his word, the floods of life will not wash us away. And even as Paul exhorts us in Romans 12, 1 and 2 to present our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord, holy and acceptable, that's how we worship the Lord, and not to be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind, that by testing, you see, testing is always there, that by testing we may discern what is the will of God and what is good and acceptable and perfect. And Peter exhorts us a little bit later in this very letter. It says, in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. As we'll go through this epistle of Peter, you'll see why he is often referred to as the apostle of hope. He's writing to those whom he calls the elect Exiles, elect, dispersed in that area of Asia Minor. Gentile and Jewish believers in the name reasons are in the name regions are described by Peter as elect. It is important to note that again many of the early Jewish believers had trouble accepting the Gentiles as chosen ones. So it's really important, if you, and if you read other epistles in the New Testament, you see that just with, it just flows and fits right in there, all these concepts of election and predestination, sanctification, foreknowledge, you know, perseverance and, uh, and uh, God's preservation, you know, of the saints. All of these things are just easily intertwined with all of that as we learn about our sovereign God. So the fact that Peter addresses all the believers as elect is significant because the Jews always thought of themselves as the chosen people. You know, in, in the uh, uh, 
in Fiddler on the Roof, you know, Reptavia, she's going through all of his trials, you know, said, God, you know, I'm something like this. I'm thankful that, that we're your chosen people, but can you, can you pick somebody else for a little while, you know, to be suffering all of these trials and troubles? But the Jews, you know, knew that God had called them out. He had called Abraham out. He had called all of them out unto himself. But now, recall that Peter, early on, years ago, had learned from the Lord in the vision at the house of Simon the Tanner that God was bringing the Gentiles into the church. And he preached to the household of Cornelius, and God granted them the Holy Spirit, as evident that God's elect were among the Gentiles as well. And we can go back even into the Old Testament. And see that, remember that in the lineage of Jesus, we see the grace of our God throughout the Old Testament. In the very lineage of Jesus, we find elect Gentiles, such as Rahab the harlot, Ruth the Moabitess. As you will notice throughout this epistle in the entire Bible, the doctrine of election is good for us and it's a great source of both humility knowing that we could not come to God on our own but it's also a great source of comfort in the first 19 questions of the shorter catechism Westminster shorter catechism we've uh, in our Wednesday night study we've been considering the state we've considering the creation the attributes the decrees the holiness of God how man fell into a state of sin and misery subject to the holy and just wrath of our holy God. But in question 20, we are instructed instructed in this way. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? The answer is out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, God chose some for everlasting life, and he entered into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of their state of sin and misery and to bring them into a state of salvation by a redeemer for those who know Christ he's talking about us and who is the redeemer of God's elect the only redeemer of God's chosen ones is the Lord Jesus Christ who being the eternal son of God became man and so was and continues to be God and man in two wholly distinct natures and one person forever you might think I'm preaching more from Paul today because of all the other quotations, but uh, we'll get to more of Peter as we get deeper into this. But uh, let it serve uh, this introduction. Ephesians chapter 1, what Paul and what Peter and what John, what they all say is the same thing. We bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he's blessed us with all these spiritual blessings in heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Romans three twenty one to 22 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Peter also mentions the word foreknowledge, those he foreknew. 
Paul also writes about that in Romans 8, 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And among those whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. So the foreknowledge of God the Father is not God looking down through time, discovering who would respond to him and then electing them. This foreknowledge view sees all of history, that, you know, this particular view that I'm, that I'm saying we're not, uh, is not what is the correct way, that foreknowledge view sees all of history as some great movie that God has watched but that he didn't create and he is therefore not sovereign. The flow of history in that view depends upon the will of man, not the plan of God. The biblical view is that when God foreknows a person, when God foreknows a person from all eternity, he sets his love upon him. When he foreknows a person, he sets his love upon him from all eternity. Our Lord's choice of men and women for salvation is based on his decision to set his love upon him, not his knowledge of what they will do, which is a great comfort to us. Your salvation and mine is not based upon our works or efforts, but on God's sovereign will. If we know him, if we have confessed our own sins, we believe that Jesus Christ is the perfect and sinless son of God who took the wrath and punishment that we deserve for our sin, bore it himself in the suffering and passion of the crucifixion, was dead and buried for three days and rose again from the dead, ascended into heaven and now sits at the right hand of God the Father, soon to judge the living and the dead. If you believe and confess your sins and trust only in the work of Jesus as sufficient payment for your sin, you will be saved from the eternal wrath of God. So, brothers and sisters, God does not reject those whom he foreknew. What a comfort that you are chosen in Christ. We who, along with the Jews and Gentiles of long ago, We're without Christ, without hope in the world, living in our own pit of sin. Whether it was in debauchery or whether we had a nice, clean, moralistic pride. Whether we were shaking our fist at God or we were ignoring him in our smug opinion that we have no need of a personal relationship with God, much less a Savior. We were without hope of salvation from the wrath of God. But those who are in Christ, none can snatch us out of the hand of the one who foreknew us as his own and who sent his quickening spirit. Peter also writes, we are called for sanctification and for, for obedience to Christ. The Holy Spirit brings us to Christ, causing us to be born again by God's sovereign will and foreknowledge as he carries out all that he has decreed from all eternity. We cannot do it on our own, for we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But Ephesians 2.10 says this, As we have come to Christ, as we know him, as he has forgiven us, we are born again. We are his workmanship, that work of sanctification. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works are important. Good works, just we just can't earn our way to God with good works. But God has called us for this purpose, 
to sanctify us for obedience to Christ, that indeed good works would be there, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And Philippians 2, 12 and 13, Paul there says, My beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. It is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So Peter is again encouraging encouraging those believers and just as we need to be encouraged today that it is God who is at work within us we all face trials we all face discouragement we all face weariness we all sometimes just feel sorry for ourselves but God's at work God's at work but he does it through his word and our time in that word and the spirit revealing that word to us the sprinkling with blood is the other words that Peter uses there, the sprinkling with his blood. The book of Hebrews gives us a lesson in the Old Testament sacrificial system, speaking about, you know, the life being in the blood and the blood, you know, having to be spilled and to be sprinkled upon the altar that our consciences might be clear. Uh, but the book of Hebrews says it wasn't quite enough. It all pointed to that one ultimate sacrifice. It all pointed to Christ. In Hebrews ten nineteen, says, Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, the priest could enter into the holy place of the Lord by the blood of the sacrificial lamb by the new and living way that Christ has opened up for us through the curtain, that is, his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So see, we can, we who are afraid, we who are troubled, we who struggle in this life, we have this word of confidence that comes from Peter, that comes from the writer of Hebrews. We have a great priest over the house of God. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 1 John 1, seven says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. And back to Peter's greeting. We talked about grace and peace uh, before talking about all the other stuff. But just to review it again, may, cre- may grace and peace be multiplied to you. In other words, may it be yours in abundance. That is the Lord's wish for us from his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you, Lord, for this day that you have uh, 
given to us. We thank you for the word. We thank you for, Lord, election, for foreknowledge, for sanctification, for being sprinkled clean. We thank you. Oh, Lord God, as, as Peter prayed, as he desired for those believers not to just have a little bit of grace and peace, but that it would be multiplied to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we give you praise and thanksgiving that, Lord, you have done that and you continue to, to do it until the day that we are with you. We praise your name. Amen.